If you have a copy of the scriptures with you or a Bible app on your phone, join me in the Song of Solomon chapter 5. The Song of Solomon chapter 5 this morning. Before we get into our study today, um, I want to um, give you an opportunity to hear from Ed and Rebecca Snow. Ed and Rebecca had an opportunity a couple weeks ago to attend a ministry called Outback. And Outback is an incredible ministry. It's all over the U.S., but they do a couple events here locally in the Cincinnati area, and they really target uh, relationships between husbands and wives and parents and their kids. And um, Ed and Rebecca had an opportunity to be part of this ministry uh, a couple weeks ago, and God just did an amazing work during their time there. So we asked them to come and share a little bit uh, about their time in the Outback, if you will. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for letting us share. This experience was absolutely amazing and has really changed us. I know for me, it really changed me from the inside out. Um, Two weeks ago, Ed and I got to experience the Outback Adventure for an entire weekend. Um, The primary goal of Outback is to strengthen relationships with God and with the individual that you went with, whether it's with a parent-child relationship or a husband and wife. Um, It's also in a unique environment where you're completely unplugged and undistracted. We don't want to divulge too much because when we went there, we really didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. I know a couple other couples have experienced it also. I know Mark and Andrea and a few others we heard, so I'm sure they can relate to our experiences. But we pretty much were told, just go. Just let yourself enjoy it. Um, So when you go, when you drive there, you pull up, and they take your keys and your belongings in your car, and they let you go. And we were just greeted with smiles and warmth and just immediately felt welcomed. Um, It was an experience where you really have to trust and surrender, and that was difficult for me, but it was very freeing and very exciting at the same time. There is a lot of surrender involved, but the people there really help to make that easier. Um, You're surrounded by good, godly people that want to make sure that all of your needs are met and that you're comfortable so that you can be totally devoted and invested, or totally devoted to investing in this relationship that you've come to work on, whether it's husband and wife or between a parent and a child. Um, They go out of their way to make sure that anything that you need that they can provide is there for you. Um, And... They have amazing food, which you you will eat way too much of while you're there also. I think the best part of the Outback Adventure was um, just the entire place was absolutely just drenched in God's love. You could feel it. You could feel the love and the prayers no matter where you went on the property, whether you were just laying in your sleeping tent, you were in the worship, you were eating, you were with your group. um, You could just feel God show up, and he showed up and in big ways for us. I mean, he answered prayers. He um, just spoke directly to us, and it's really hard to put into words what exactly that was, but we knew he was there. We also walked away with new tools for our marriage um, and our relationship. We came away with new ways we prayed, um, and it really gave us a renewed sense of hope for anything that we'll be facing in the future. Yeah. When we first met Joe, and Abby, they began telling us that God had put it on their heart that they needed to tell us about this outback and that we should go. It was really like the first night we met Joe, he was telling us, which was a little strange, like, who's this guy? Why is he trying to get us to go camping already? (laughs) Um, 
and but then Joe came up to us a week before the outback, and you know this had been months ago. And he came up a week before and said, "Okay, guys, it's time. It's next week." And the first thing we said is, "It's impossible, Joe. There's no way with our work schedules and with everything that's going on in our lives, it's not going to happen." And it was, when we got to that point, it was amazing to watch God work because God made it happen. So I just want to encourage you, if you feel a little bit of a tug on your heart that there's a relationship that you want to work on, go. Just go and watch God work. He wants to meet you there. He wants you to be intentional. He wants to you to set aside the distractions and invest in, in the relationship. So. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. I was just going to yep. say that it's only twice a year. It's in the fall and the spring, spring and fall, so May and October. And I know I've been thinking about it every day since we left. Um, we're going to go back, whether we do this yearly just for maintenance for our marriage or maybe take our kids one day or um, I just, it's just absolutely amazing. You guys wouldn't regret going if you did. Yeah, we can attest to that. And as I said, Andrea and I went um, about a year or so ago. And if this is something that maybe resonates with you, you say this is something that we need to do as a husband and wife or, um, or we need to do this as a uh, parent-child relationship. Parent-child relationship. Parent-child relationship. All right. I'll just do this. All right. Thank, um, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, let us know. All right, if that's something as a parent-child relationship or a husband-wife you sense, you know, that's something that we might be interested in. Talk to Ed and Rebecca, and they can tell you a little bit more about how to be part of that. If, and if finances is an issue, don't worry about it. Um, we'll go out in faith and just trust that God will take care of that for you guys if that's something that you want to be a part of, okay, as a husband and wife. Um, Song of Solomon, Chapter 5. If you're new to us this morning, this is your first time with us uh, being with Living Church, thank you. We're glad you're here. Um, you're jumping into a series, um, a marriage series specifically, and we've been kind of walking through uh, the Song of Solomon. And we've been dealing with all kinds of different things in the Song of Solomon. What's God's heart for marriage, God's heart for a husband, God's heart for a wife. Uh, we've looked at the different types of things that can come into a marriage. We call them foxes. Actually, we don't call them that. The Song of Solomon calls them foxes that enter a vineyard and can spoil a marriage. We've looked at those over the past couple of weeks. This morning, we want to talk about conflict. All right, we want to look at some conflict that's going to take place in this relationship between the Song of Songs husband and the Song of Songs wife. Before we look at the scripture in Song of Solomon 5, here's what I want you to discuss at your table. I want you to fill in this statement. The top three areas of marriage conflict are... What do you think they are? At your table, discuss that. The top three areas of marriage conflict are, and then discuss that. What do you think they are? Thank you for taking some time to uh, share a little bit. I don't know what they are. All right? If you're hoping what the top three are, I don't know. Okay? I just thought it would be good for us to have a little conversation at the table. Um, actually, I, I, I don't have any statistical proof on this, but from the experience of my own marriage and just counseling different couples and premarriage counseling, I think... Uh, the top three that I think are, are the biggest areas of marriage conflict would have to involve money, all right, would have to involve money, would have to involve communication in some form. He talks a lot, she doesn't talk, she talks a lot, he doesn't talk. It could involve that, and it could involve, the third one is usually the intimate relationship, the sexual relationship, all right, so the, I don't have any statistical proof behind that, um, but I would say that those three probably 
are in at least the top five, all right, maybe the top three. So this morning, we're going to look at the Song of Solomon, all right, the Song of Solomon, chapter five. We're skipping a couple of chapters, primarily because in chapters three and four, it's more of what you read in chapter one and two, chapters one and two, where the husband and wife go back and forth complimenting one another. And so we see in chapters three and four, continuous um, complimenting one another's husband and wife, she's this, he's this, and it's just as praise toward one another in chapters three and four. Um, now, I need to tell you, as it, it relates to Song of Solomon and interpreting this book, chapters three through six, some believe that this is an, she's describing a dream that she's having. We don't know this for sure, but in chapter three, verse one, uh, she talks about, on my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. Chapter 5, verse 2, she talks about how I slept, but my heart was awake. Some believe that this is a dream. She's describing a dream that she's having, but we don't know that for sure. But what we do know in chapters 3 and 4, as I said, is that we continue to see God's heart for a husband and God's heart for a wife. And God's heart for the husband and wife is that they desire one another and that they declare and affirm their love to and for one another. And so that's what we see in the first four chapters of the Song of Solomon. And as you read, and if you're new to this whole Song of Solomon, this whole book, you read it and you go, this is just too good to be true. I mean, they're just complimenting one another. They're whispering sweet nothings. I mean, that's not real. I mean, that's, I mean, serious. I mean, if I compare their marriage to my marriage, I would, you know, where's the conflict, right? Where, where's the conflict? Where's the struggle, Right, I read this couple, the Song of Solomon, you're like this. Your legs are like this. Your hair's like a flock of goats. I mean, it's, I mean you're reading, you're like, what? You know, it's all this complimenting stuff. And you wonder, where's the conflict? Do they ever struggle? Yes, they do. And we read about their conflict in chapter 5. There's this struggle that's going to take place. This couple actually had foxes, their own foxes, to deal with. In their marriage vineyard, conflict does enter their relationship. This marriage is not a fantasy. It is real. And this morning, what I want us to do is we're going to look at their conflict this morning. And then from their responses, come away, hopefully, with some responses for us when conflict enters our marriages. So let me just kind of, I'll read some verses and then I'll comment on them, read some verses and comment on them. So let's go to Song of Solomon chapter 5. Okay, he is speaking, the husband's speaking. And he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. All right, we read like, what in the world is he talking about? This guy, he comes to his garden. He's lathered himself with cologne. He's being well fed. What he's hoping for is a little intimacy. Okay? He's hoping for a little romantic rendezvous. Okay? That's what he's preparing himself. Okay? And then you know by the friends, look at what the friends say. Oh, eat friends, drink, get drunk with love. All right? They kind of have an idea where this guy's going. All right? So he's splashed in some cologne on him. He's eating his honeycomb with honey. I mean, he's feeling sweet. He's feeling good. Right, and then in verse 2, the wife speaks and she says, I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound, my beloved is knocking. And this is what he says to her. He says on the outside of the door, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Now let's back up here a little bit. Let's pause, if you will, and let's get an idea of the situation 
from the husband's perspective in verses 1 and 2. Now what we can assume here from these first couple verses is that the husband and wife are not in the same room. All right, they're not in the same bedroom. He talks about how his head is wet with dew, his locks with the drops of the night. Now, we don't know exactly why they're separated. It's possible maybe he's getting home late from work. Maybe he's been gone all week on business. And so he's getting home maybe from the fields, working in the fields, whatever it might be. It's possible that they're separate because it was a cultural thing. Some believe that husbands and wives in the ancient Near East, they occupied separate bedrooms and it was only the wealthy that had private suites. But we don't know for sure, but what we do know from reading verses 1 and 2 is that this husband is wanting to be with his wife. All right? That, that's, we get that. We see this in verses 1 and 2. He's looking for a little romance. All right? So he goes to her door and he compliments her from the outside of the door. My dove. My perfect one. I'm feeling the flesh. I mean, he's like, all right, he's just like, you know, please, please, can I come open the door? Right? And he, he, that's what he's feeling. He's got a little romance. All right, that's where he's at. That's his perspective. Verse 3, or actually verse 2. Now let's look at the situation from the wife. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. She wasn't quite sound asleep. She's almost there. She hears the knocking. And then in verse 3, she says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Let's pause. What's she saying here? She's ready for bed. All right? She's ready for bed. She's taken off her robe. She's put on her jammies. All right? She's gotten ready for bed. It's been a long day. She's tired from working in the fields and the vineyards. And getting ready for bed was not a simple process for brides in the ancient Near East. All right, it, it just was not a simple, quick little process. It often involved washing the feet, right? They wore sandals, and sandals meant dirt roads back then, all right? And so you come home, every time you'd enter a home, you would have to have your feet washed. And so now you get home from a long day, or not drive, but walking on the roads, all this different stuff, your feet are dirty. So the wife goes upstairs, she's getting ready for bed, he's gone. For whatever reason, we don't know. She takes off her sandals, she's cleaned, cleaned her feet, she's taken off her makeup, whatever she needs to do. And she's ready for bed. She's put on her jammies. She's tired. She's exhausted. All right? And so she says, knock on the door. Hey, honey. Honey. Honey, I'm home. Lovely. And she's like thinking to herself, are you serious? I'm so tired. I'm exhausted. Does he know what I've been through all day? Good grief. All he wants, you know, all right? And so she's like, I say, so I'm like, my robe, I've washed my face, I've washed my feet. That's what she's thinking to herself. And she's thinking, how am I going to respond to his romantic advances, right? So she's thinking of all these things she's going to have to do if she responds. The timing is just incredibly inconvenient. And so you can begin, right? You can begin to kind of feel this tension, right? There's tension, this conflict that's starting to happen, all right? He's wanting to, she is not. All right, there's some conflict starting to happen. And then in verse 4, she says, My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. So he's putting his hand on the door, most likely locked. And she says that my heart was thrilled within me. Now, that word thrilled is, is a unique word here. I don't think it really is intended to mean what we define that word to mean. 
unless she's being, you know, I think if you look at the original language in which the Old Testament was written the book, in Hebrew, that word literally means frustration, murmuring. So maybe she's being sarcastic, right? My heart was thrilled within me, you know? And so she's growling, she's murmuring, she's kind of in this uproar, if you will. She's definitely not feeling accommodating to his desires. But begrudgingly, all right, verse 5, she says, I arose to open my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So here we have this conflict, right? A fox has entered this relationship, And their conflict that's described here happens to be regarding their sexual relationship, their intimacy. And if you've been married for any amount of time, I'm guessing this conflict resonates with some of you. All right, we'll do premarriage counseling and we'll tell people, listen, one of the primary areas of struggle is going to be your sexual relationship. (laughs) Are you serious? Really? No way. Yes. (laughs) Trust me. Okay, it's going to be there. And that's what's described here. Their conflict is happens to be with their intimate relationship. And then so she says she goes to the door and her hands are dripping with this liquid myrrh, right? What's that mean? Well, some believe that it was custom for a husband to leave fragrant myrrh on a bride's door or on his bride's door as a sign that he had been there. So it's possible that when the wife is delaying in her response to her husband, the husband still leaves this liquid perfume on the door like a love note. To tell her, I still love you. I love you anyway. I still desire you. And it's obvious that her delay was long enough to send a message to him that said, not tonight. All right? He's not there. She goes, verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And so... What's interesting here is you have this conflict. You have this tension between this husband and this wife. And she's delaying in her response as she thinks to herself the different things that she's going to have to do to get up out of bed and open the door and those kinds of things. And it's long enough to where he says, I'm, I'm just going to, okay. It's obvious not the timing isn't good. And so he leaves, but he leaves this liquid love note, if you will, on the door for her to say, listen, I still love you. What you see, I think there is a beautiful picture of grace. A beautiful picture of grace. He doesn't yell at her through the door. We don't see him angry or demanding that she honor his desires. Discouraged by her response, disappointed? Absolutely. But instead of a mean response, he still leaves this liquid love note on the door anyway. And he shows this unconditional love toward his bride. And I, as I was reading that, I'm saying, that what's a... What a beautiful picture of grace. What a beautiful picture of God's love toward us that even while we were still sinners and saying no to Christ, Christ died for us. It's a beautiful reminder of Christ's love for us is not based on our performance. It's not based on our response to him. No, his love for us is completely based upon his unconditional love toward us. And that's what we see here. And then verses 6 through 8, we see the wife's response. She opens the door. Her fingers are dripping with this liquid perfume, right? It's a reminder of his love for her. And she says, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. So here she opens the door. He's not there. Her hands and fingers are dripping with this love note he's put there. And as she's smelling this liquid perfume and seeing it drip, she's reminded of his incredible grace toward her. 
And so what she do? She said, I can't. She goes after him. She goes after him. Her heart sinks. She's in despair that he's not there. And so she calls for him, but he's not there. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And then she goes looking for him. She's pursuing him. She goes into the city, no longer caring about the inconveniences, but she has one pursuit, going after him. And I ask myself, well, what changed? Just moments before, she was begrudging. There was this thinking of herself, and then now she's going after him. What changed? you know what it was? It was the incredible, unconditional grace of the husband toward his wife that drew his wife toward him. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that we see here. It was the grace of the husband toward his wife in that moment of conflict that drew his wife toward him. And I wonder what her response would have been if her husband, rather than responding with grace, would have responded with anger or malice or bitterness or harsh words or selfishness, but he didn't. His response was gracious. And as a result, she's then drawn to redemption. She's drawn to reconciliation. She's drawn to restoring this conflict and their relationship. And it's, again, a beautiful picture of divine redemption, I think, that we see here because Paul wrote in Romans, he said, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And in 1 John 4, 19, John wrote, listen, we love because he first loved. He's the first responder. He comes to us first. And because of his grace toward us, we then are drawn to him. So I think here we have a beautiful picture of God's love, first love toward us. Now, I'll be honest, as we approach verse 7, I'm not quite sure how to understand verse 7. I don't, I don't really know. There's all kinds of different interpretations of verse 7. Again, some believe that this gives credence to the fact that she's dreaming. We don't know. It could be that she's just describing this guilt maybe that she feels, or she feels like she deserves punishment for how she treated him. Again, we don't know. And then she calls out on her friends in verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. She realizes the grace that she's been given by her husband, and she's drawn to him. She goes to her friends. She says, help me find him. Help me find him. But then the friends, look at what they say, verse 9, What is your beloved more than any other, or most beautiful among women? I mean, what is your beloved more than another that you should call out to us? What makes your husband so special that you track him down like that? What makes him so different from all the others that you're pursuing him? And I think what we see here is a fox has entered their vineyard, a fox of conflict. And then what I want us to look at here is I want us to see their responses in the middle of this conflict in their relationship. Verse 6 and 7 of chapter 5, we referenced it already, but her response is to pursue him. She pursues him. She's overcome by his grace. She doesn't go back to bed. She doesn't go back to her room and say, well, oh, start you know, justifying her actions. She goes after him to make things right. She's no longer concerned about her own inconvenience. Her focus is on him, not her. And then in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 5, she goes on this litany of praise about her man. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, verse 10, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. He's tall, dark, and handsome. And she just goes on to describe her, her husband. She praises him. And then in verse 16, she says, he's altogether desirable. 
instead of her thinking, well, I definitely deserve better than him, she, know, she pauses and she remembers who he is, the one that God has given to her. She focuses on the man God has given to her, and she references him as my friend in verse 16. This is my beloved. There's this companionship. It's more than just physical. It's more than just sexual. There's this companionship, this friendship, and I think that's so missing in today's marriages. There's this friendship. You're fostering this friendship, and what often happens between couples is once the kids leave, there's no friendship between the husband and wife, and now husband and wife, they don't know how to get along because they never spent time working on their own marriage vineyard. And so the wife responds by pursuing her husband. She responds by praising her husband. And then in chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, we'll look at chapter, uh, verse 1. The friends respond, well, where is he gone, O most beautiful among women? Six, this is chapter 6, verse 1. Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? They're like, before the friends were like, what's so great about him? Then she goes on describing him. She doesn't criticize him. And they're like, okay, yeah, you guys are drunk with love. We've got to make this thing work with you. We've we got to help you guys. You guys are weird. You're crazy. But there's something about your relationship that doesn't make sense. So we've got to come alongside you and help you. And then she says this in chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. She says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. What's she doing? I think she's remembering their covenant promise. Because she says, she references their garden as his garden. It's his garden. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices. And she, verse 3, speaks of my beloved. My beloved is mine. There's this covenant of oneness. She's recalling this promise That they have. She remembers their covenant of oneness before God. Why? Because she remembers that they're no longer two, but one. What is his is hers, and what is hers is his, not just materially, not just financially, not just physically, but also sexually. She understands what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he said, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. There's a sense of oneness in marriage, and she remembers this covenant promise that they have made before God. And then again, you have the response of the friends in verse 1. And then what's his response? Verse 4. Okay, he was kind of left standing there at the door, right? How's this guy going to respond? Disappointed, discouraged, frustrated, isolated from his wife, feeling. How's he respond? Look at what he does. Verses 4 through 10. You are beautiful as tourism, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Try that one, fellas. Honey, your hair is like a flock of goats. Probably not going to go over too well. Leaping down the slopes of Gilead, your teeth are like a flock of sheep that you have come up with from the washing. All of them bear twins. There's jokes I could make here, but I won't. She has all her teeth, okay? Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. There's 60 queens, 80 concubines, virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. And then he continues to just praise her. You know what he's doing? He's pouring out grace. 
he is pouring out grace toward his wife. He's been wounded, maybe feeling rejected. How's he going to respond? He just praises her. He compliments her. He just keeps pouring grace. And I think there's a lot for us to learn as it relates to our responses when foxes enter our marriage vineyard and create isolation between us as husbands and wives. And I just want to recap again, what are these responses that we need to pursue when marriage conflict enters? Well, we see it. The first thing you need to do is you need to pursue your spouse. Four responses when in marital conflict. And this could be for any conflict. This isn't just conflict in your sexual relationship. This could be conflict about how you raise your kids, conflict about where you're going to spend the holidays, conflict about how you handle your money, conflict about whatever. The first thing you need to do is you need to pursue your spouse. You need to be the first responder. You know what a first responder is? They're usually the first one on the scene, usually police officer, emergency medical person. When there's a crisis, there's a first responder. You be the first responder. You say, but what if I'm the one that was wounded? You still be the first responder. Still. Both of you should be the first responder. So what should be happening is like you're both walking toward one another. You're not waiting on the other to walk toward you. You're both at the same time walking toward one another to resolve this conflict because you both understand I need to pursue her and I need to pursue him. Even if I've been the one that's wounded, yes, Matthew 18, we use this passage often as it relates to church discipline, but I think there's a broader application here. When Jesus says, if anyone has sinned against you, you go to him. First response. And Jesus said, we know the golden rule. Jesus said this, do unto others is what you would have them to do unto you. Well, if you would like your spouse to be the first responder to you, you need to do what you want the spouse to do to you. You be the first responder. And when you respond that way, you sit, you listen, you talk, you ask questions, you engage each other about the conflict. You pursue your spouse. You second, you praise your spouse. You praise them. Proverbs 12, 24, 25 says this, A kind word makes the heart glad. Anxiety weighs the heart down, but a kind word makes the heart glad. Have you ever been in a room, or maybe you walked into a room, and you were discouraged and despondent, and then everybody in the room starts laughing, even though you don't know what they're laughing about, and then you find yourself laughing too? Right? Or you're watching something on television or whatever, and you were maybe despondent, despaired. Then everyone, like for whatever reason, it's a scene where everybody's laughing, and then you just start laughing too, and you're like... I don't even know why I'm laughing, but I'm laughing. We've all been there. We've all experienced it. And I think that's what happens when it comes to praise. The act of praise often turns our heart to praise. There's a reason why throughout Scripture, the writers often said, abound in thanksgiving. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Because there's something that happens when you start praising, when you start being thankful. The, The act of thankfulness turns your heart toward thankfulness. So when it comes to marital conflict, pause Thank God for your spouse. Start thinking about all the different things about your spouse that you're thankful for. You pursue your spouse. You praise your spouse. Third, you keep your promise before God. When you stood there on that day, you said for better and for worse. For better and for worse. You made a promise, a commitment, a vow to God. Ecclesiastes says, don't make a vow harshly because God sees your vows as legit. And he says, you need to keep your promise before God, your covenant. Remember, do you believe that God is the one that brought you together? If you believe that, then you must believe that he's strong enough to keep you together. 
And you remember that covenant that you've made before God. And fourth, you keep pouring out grace like Jesus. You keep forgiving. Even if he's wounded me, yes. Even if he keeps, yes. With his words, yes. Peter went to Jesus and he said, hey, how often should I forgive somebody? Seven times? What's Jesus' answer? Seventy times seven. You just keep forgiving. You keep pouring out grace. You keep offering grace. And maybe you sit there and you go, are you serious, man? Are you serious? Do you know what my husband's done? Do you know what she said to me just this morning? And you want me to pursue him? You want me to praise her? You want me to keep pouring out grace? Are you serious? Yes. But you say, I can't do that, man. I can't do that. That takes something supernatural. Exactly. Exactly. Because you can't do this apart from Jesus Christ. You can't. It does take something supernatural. In that moment when you're either the wounded or the wounder, there's, how are you going to be the first responder? How are you going to keep pouring grace time after time? You can't on your own. That's why you've got to have Jesus and the Spirit of Christ in you to do it through you. That's why in times of marital struggle and conflict, you've got to look to the gospel. You've got to look to the grace of Christ poured out toward you and poured out in you so you can pour out the grace toward your spouse. And so when foxes enter your vineyard and you and your spouse are in conflict and isolation, you've got to remember this, that God poured out his love toward you while you were still sinning. Christ died for you. And you've got to remember that his grace is enough for you. For Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness when you feel like you can't love your spouse. You got to remember that God is love and God poured out this love into your heart through his Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. And you got to remember in 1 John 4, 11 that you are his beloved. And if God so loved you, then through him you can love your spouse. Because it will be the unconditional grace of Christ toward you, a sinner, that will move you to pursue, to praise, to keep your promise and pour unconditional grace toward your spouse who is also a sinner. Go with me to 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to ask the band to come. 1 John chapter 4. No one is saying this is easy. And in two weeks we're going to look at communication. Today we talk about conflict. But in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about communicating as husbands and wives. Just, can you just imagine for a moment? Imagine if husbands and wives, when there was conflict, if our first thought was to pursue, if our first thought was to praise, if our first thought was to remember the covenant promise, if our first thought was to keep pouring out grace, can you imagine what that would do for marriages? Can you imagine what a display of the gospel that would be to those watching our marriages? 1 John chapter 4. Again, we must remember what is the backdrop to the Song of Songs. Chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. He writes, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love our spouses. We also ought to love one another. That one another involves our spouses. You see, the move and the motivation 
And the means for loving our spouse in the middle of conflict is the love of God for us. It's the love of God for us. Here's what I want you to do as we wrap up this morning. There are blank sheets of paper at your table. All right? I want you to just take a moment while the band plays a song. This is how, this is how we're going to close. I want you to ask and answer a couple of questions. What's Jesus saying to you this morning? Maybe you came here in conflict. Maybe conflict isn't even with a spouse. Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's a parent. These are principles for dealing and responding to any conflict. But on your blank piece of paper, as they sing this song and as you write, I just want you to ask the question and answer it. What's Jesus saying to me this morning? What's he saying to me? Then what do I need to do in response to what he's saying to me? Maybe you need to go to your spouse later today. Maybe you need to go and seek forgiveness. Maybe you need to go and give forgiveness. Maybe you just need to go and thank God for his forgiveness for you. What's Jesus saying to you this morning? As they sing, I just want you to take time and just write. What's Jesus saying to you? What do you need to do in response to what he's saying to you this morning?